You're listening to Fuller Curated, a podcast of the best conversations happening at Fuller. Gioacchino Campese, I am uh, from Italy, from Rome. I am a professor of pastoral theology of human mobility at the Pontificia Università Urbaniana, which is, which is a pontifical university in Rome. And I take the kind invitation that I received to participate to the missiology, to the missiology lectures in 2020, for which I thank the organizers and the Fuller Theological Seminary as an institution, as a precious opportunity, even if only virtually, to the ongoing pandemic, to promote and practice what I consider two key concepts for the Christian pilgrimage toward Catholicity, the culture of encounter and synodality. This opportunity has been facilitated by at least three facts. One, the organizers have given a very specific contextual focus to the Missiology Lectures 2020. Los Angeles as a global crossroads. I will speak from another specific context, the city of Rome, which represents itself a global crossroads in the larger framework of the European Mediterranean area, which specifically as a Mediterranean region is finally and progressively becoming an area of great interest for pastoral ministry and theological reflections. In this way, the Missiology Lectures 2020 becomes an opportunity for the encounter and conversation between two very interesting and challenging global crossroads, Los Angeles and Rome, as representatives of much larger geographical, cultural, and religious contexts. As a Roman Catholic, I consider this event as an inspiring moment of a larger Christian synodality, which which goes beyond the borders and limitation of my own church. Even if I, and thirdly, even if I am new to the Fuller uh, Theological Seminary, I am not new to its context. Uh, in fact, from 1995 to 2002, I lived between Tijuana, just across, across the border from Mexico, where I worked with migrants in a shelter founded by my religious order in 1987, and Los Angeles. So I lived between, in, uh, from 1995 to 2002, between Tijuana and Los Angeles. This means that I have a pretty gr good picture of Los Angeles as a global crossroads, and at least in my view, as a part of a larger border area that begins in Tijuana and ends in Los Angeles itself. The outline that I will follow in this talk will be uh, uh, the following. In the first part, I will briefly reflect about the concepts, realities that appear in the title of this presentation, namely migration, religion, and world Christianity from the perspective of my own context. And in a second part, I will develop the idea of Catholicity in terms of the two key concepts that I have mentioned earlier, 
the culture of encounter and synodality. I hope that in the course of this presentation, you will see that the main threads linking these concepts uh, and uh, realities are the migrants and the commitment of the Christian churches to be on the move in order to accompany humankind in its journey under the guidance of the spirit. At, the, at that, when I speak about concepts such as synodality and Catholicity, I do so from a Roman Catholic perspective, but with world Christianity in mind. For those who have followed the developments in the, in the Roman Catholic Church in the last seven years, the terms culture of encounter and synodality will sound very familiar. But for those who have not, it is necessary to underline that for these concepts and in general for this whole presentation, I am indebted to the teaching and ministry of the Bishop of Rome, Jorge Mario Bergoglio, who since his election in 2013 is more widely known as Pope Francis. I have not chosen Pope Francis as the main guide for this talk, simply because he is the head of the church to which I belong, but for much more substantial reasons, among which I, I mentioned four. The first, from the start, Pope Francis has been very clear about the main objective of his teaching and ministry, the missionary conversion of the church, a church that cannot just continue with the refrain, we've done it always this way, but it is called to be bold and creative in rethinking itself in a change of epoch. Mission is the vital center of an, of an ecclesia semper reformanda, a church that is always reforming itself. And the apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, uh, the joy of the gospel, stands as the programmatic document of this process of missionary conversion. Secondly, in many ways, Pope Francis represents and fosters world Christianity, and not simply because he is the first Latin American pope. He has been purposefully including the voices of Catholicism from the global south in the life, teaching, and also governance of the Roman Catholic Church, which now looks little less Roman and considerably more Catholic. Perhaps the more symbolic gesture in this sense has been his decision to inaugurate the Jubilee Year of Mercy in 2015, not in Rome, the traditional center of Roman Catholicism, but in Bangui, the capital of the war-torn Central African Republic, a virtually unknown African city, which is, in his own words, became the spiritual capital of the world. Thirdly, when Francis visited the USA in 2015, he began his speech in the lawn of the White House with these words, unquote, as the son of an immigrant family, I am happy to be a guest of this country, which was largely built by such families." End of quote. Always eager to give witness to his immigrant roots, Bergoglio has, since the beginning of his ministry as the Bishop of Rome, taken to heart the plight of migrants, refugees, victims of human trafficking, and internally displaced people, and put human mobility as one of the core issues at the center of the missionary conversion of the church. Fourth, despite many obstacles, especially within the church itself and his own limitation as a person, uh, Francis is de decently living up to his traditional title, that is 
the pontiff, from the Latin pontifex, the maker of bridges, by striving uh, accordingly to build bridges within the Roman Catholic Church itself, between the Roman Catholic Church and other Christian churches, supporting an ecumenism of common action and service between Christianity and the world around and the world around some fundamental global issues, such as the care of creation, our common home, economic inclusion and sustainability, reconciliation and solidarity among peoples and nations, the plight of those who live at the margins, the peripheries of the world, and more specifically, the descartados, the wasted people of our planet, about whom we will talk later. In this in-flight press conference, going back to Rome from his trip in Mexico in 2016, he said, a person who thinks only of building walls, wherever it may be, and not of building bridges, is not Christian. This is not the gospel. Now let's go to the three uh, uh, first you know, uh, concepts uh, and realities that are in the title of my presentation. The first one, migration. I will not refer here to data, which are readily available for those who want to know the reality of migration, but that are unfortunately conveniently overlooked and manipulated by politicians and pundits who have interest in pushing a misrepresentation of migration. What I would like to do here is to highlight three aspects of the complex phenomenon of migration that I consider relevant for this presentation. The first one, the extraordinary emotional charge with which the whole issue is invested, a charge presented both, pre present, uh, both in pro-immigrant and anti-immigrant fields and that emerges both in political campaigns and debates and in informal conversation everywhere. People, both individual and organizations, who accompany migrants and refugees in their journey are very passionate about this issue a passion that becomes active compassion and solidarity. Instances of this compassion and solidarity that are often transformed into familiarity and proximity are numerous and often amazing, both within society and the Christian churches. The latter, the Christian churches, are dedicating considerable resources to ministry with the migrants and refugees from emergency action, a search and rescue, shelter, etc., to the processes of integration within society and the ecclesial communities. Constant advocacy and the study of human mobility in its complexity. Among these examples of solidarity in, of solidarity in civic society in Italy and Europe stand out the networks of families who have welcomed refugees in their homes. On the other hand, we are also witnessing manifestation of fear, hate, and also racial animosity, due also to a non-stop, a well-organized effort to misrepresent migrants and refugees, promoted by political movements, mass media and social media, which often become the public squares in which extremely offensive expression of contempt and hatred against migrants and people who accompany them circulate freely and with impunity. Interestingly enough, the official breakout of the COVID-19 in March 2020 has also caused the temporary disappearance of the uh, issue of migration from public discourse. 
But after the first shock and with the relative improvement of the situation during the summer of 2020, the anti-immigrant movement and politicians have gone back to the usual scapegoating narrative of migrants who have been even accused of spreading the virus, of being the untori. Secondly, the division within uh, civic and ecclesial community on the issue of migration is evident. Unfortunately, often the churches, especially at the local level, have left the discourse and representation of this issue in the hands of populist and xenophobic politicians and pundits, whose speeches and slogans, amplified by Twitter and other social media, dictate the mood of public and Christian opinion. The main problem is that because of this climate of fear and hostility, it becomes increasingly difficult to have a civil conversation about the issue of migration. And often to bridge this division among people, pro and anti-immigrants becomes like a mission impossible, even within our Christian churches. Third, a very troubling element of this situation is in my view, the manipulation of Christian discourse and symbols, even the gospel itself, to push a populist and xenophobic cultural and political agenda, using the argument that the Christian identity of Italy and Europe must be protected from the invasion of the Muslim immigrants. In this way, the far-right political movements, which in my assessment promote anti-evangelical ideas and practices, and practices are emphatically advancing their claim to Christianity. The issue of religion. There is no doubt that migration has been changing the Italian and European religious landscape. And in this process, at least in Italy, can be summarized in this way. The country has gone from being a predominantly Roman Catholic country to a society with a quite significant religious plurality. This does not mean that Catholicism and its temples, its churches are disappearing. In a city such as Rome and any other important city in Italy, church buildings are normally the most visible and also beautiful structures, also because of the many works of arts that they contain. We begin by stating the obvious transformation. Migration makes Islam conspicuous. In Rome, for example, uh, Rome, for example, is home to one of the largest and more, most important mosques in Western Europe, which was built in 1995. Plus, perhaps more than 100 minor mosques and Islamic cultural center. And this is one of the great challenges that society has to face, a challenge that often, instead of being dealt with constructively, is represented automatically and conveniently in terms of an invasion and a necessarily unavoidable conflict with our supposed Christian or Catholic culture and identity. This is why many people also in our churches question the possibility of a real integration of Islam in our society. Then there is also the less obvious change, which does not receive nearly the same amount of attention by politicians, media, and also the Roman Catholic Church. What passes under the radar is the fact that thanks to migration, not only religion, but Christianity has become, has become more plural in Italy. In this case, perceptions wins over statistics. 
because while perception supported by a misleading system of communication tells that Muslims represent the majority of migrants in this country, the data say that the majority of migrants in Italy are Christians, but mostly Orthodox, then also Roman Catholics, and finally Christian that can be ascribed to the extremely varied evangelical and Pentecostal galaxies. In other words, the religious transformation of Italian society poses not only and primarily interreligious challenges, represented mostly by Islam, but also by Buddhism and Sikhism, but especially ecumenical challenges. In this context, it will be certainly, in, certainly intriguing in the next decade to see how Catholicism will be affected by Christian pluralism, and how and if Christian faith and Roman Catholic popular tradition will be passed on to, on to the second generation. I read all this transformation as a part of a larger process of progressive de-Westernization of Christianity in the world. The second, uh, or rather, the third uh, concept that we, uh, we find in the, in the, in the, at the beginning of the, of, uh, of the title uh, of this presentation, world Christianity. It is at the same time a reality and a discipline that, in my opinion, uh, are receiving a mixed reception. Although much has been written recently about world Christianity, in my experience, the best-known scholar in this field is the U.S. historian Philip Jenkins, who in 2002 made popular the advent of a world Christianity with a more global southern face and whose works have been translated in different languages. Here I remember the most important word, uh, work by uh, Philip Jenkins, which is uh, the next Christendom. Scholars have referred to Henry Van Dusen books in, in the 1940s as the beginning of the discipline of world Christianity and also the awareness of the existence of a world Christianity and have pointed to people such as Andrew Walls, Lamin Sané, Kwame Bediako, as some of its main scholars, to whom also we could add Dana Robert, Dale Irvin, Scott Sanquist, Peter Fan, and others. I personally would like to highlight the 70s as the decade in which the awareness of the advent of a global Christianity is witnessed from different contexts, in particular to the year 1974, when three scholars from three different continents contributed in distinct ways to this awareness. I am referring to the Swiss missiologist Walbert Bullman, Uruguayan historian Alberto Metol Ferrer, a Kenyan uh, theologian John Beatty. Bullman spoke about the coming of the church from the third world as the future of the global church. Metol Ferrer said that the opportunity of a world church passed necessarily from the Latin American continent. And Beatty indicated Manila, Kinshasa, Addis Ababa, and Buenos Aires as the probable future centers of Christianity. I believe that Beatty never thought that Buenos Aires would truly become one of the centers of Christianity, since its Roman Catholic bishop became in 2013 the Bishop of Rome, Pope Francis. Well, Christianity is a well-known concept in English-speaking circles and also in several faculty, faculties and centers in Europe dedicated to this discipline. In Italy, among theologians, 
probably not the majority, there is a growing awareness that Christianity is changing and becoming progressively less European and more global. These are mostly the scholars who study and know the dynamics of church's mission and ecumenism. Yet, the scholars of world Christianity that have been mentioned earlier, only among them, only Jenkins' works have been translated in Italian. Among the books on the mission that advanced the idea of a world Christianity, we have the Italian translation of the two classics of mission studies, like the ones by uh, David Bosch, A Transforming Mission, and Stephen Bevans and Roger Schroeder, uh, uh, Constance in Context. In the courses and relative bibliographies in the two faculties of missiology in Rome, at the Urbaniana and Gregorian universities, the expression of world Christianity appears rarely, if never. Gianni Colzani, who is arguably the most attentive Italian missiologist, in his recent book, Theologia della Missione, in 2019, speaks about this term, world Christianity, in a couple of pages, referring to the works of Walls and Bediaco. Andrea Tognolo, a pastoral theologian, Italian, was very recently written a book on the different inculturation of Christianity in the world, especially from a nation perspective, talks about the reality of world Christianity. But from the bibliography and the text of his work, one could conclude that he is not aware of world Christianity as a discipline. Certainly, the essential observation made by Tognolo is on point. The global character of Christianity is not simply historical, and I would add not even quantitative, a question of, just a question of numbers, but must become theological, as the main representatives of world Christianity are rightly affirming. Yet my impression is that in Italy we still think that our theology and our type of Christianity is the normative one, and so we give little attention to what is happening elsewhere in the Christian world. In the previous reflection on migration, we have highlighted the relevance of Christian migration in Italy and Europe, a global trend that has been already underlined by different missiologists. This is certainly the main way in which world Christianity becomes visible and a reality that calls for action and reflection in Italy and in Europe. But there is also an aspect of this phenomenon that needs to be underscored. It does not consist only of the considerable presence of Christian immigrants in Italy and in Europe, but also includes an increasing number of pastors and ecclesial leaders from the global south. Just a few weeks ago, a Colombian priest, Roman Catholic, who has studied in Italy, has been ministering in the Diocese of Albano for some years now, reminded me that in this diocese, in this local church, which is found in the outskirts of Rome, 70% of the priests are foreign-born, 70%. This is a trend found also in a number of other Italian dioceses and in local churches in other important Western European countries, such as France, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, and others. This fact poses many questions, such as, how are these pastors influencing Italian Catholicism and Christianity? And how they are received in the in Italian Roman Catholic context? And how come also in the academy, Western pastors going abroad are called missionaries, 
and in the global southern pastors going to western countries are just foreign priests. To conclude, migrants and more specifically Christian migrants are from the perspective of the Italian context, the people who are showing concretely the global face of Christianity today. In other words, they are not just and no longer the poor people. Italian churches are called to help in faraway mission lands, but they are real people with whom we live, work, and worship. What happens is that it's much easier to deal with Asians, African, and Latin Americans from afar than in our own context. This observation introduces us to the second part of this presentation on the issue of Catholicity and its challenges. Just to be clear, Catholicity is not here to be understood as the first name of a Christian churches, but as one of the essential qualities of Christianity. Christianity is Catholic because it must be lived and understood from the whole, including every ecclesial communities that professes its faith in Jesus, and not just from some of its parts and expressions. Christianity is expressed, celebrated, and thought out in many different ways, and all of them must be considered to have the whole Christian picture. Because if we could not, would not do that, if we are not Catholic in our perspective and imagination, we would be disregarding the gifts of the Spirit and the beauty of the variety, and the beauty of the variety face uh, of the Church. Francis affirms, in the diversity of peoples who experience the gift of God, each in accordance with his own culture, the church expresses her genuine Catholicity and shows forth the beauty of her varied face. This is uh, uh, Evangelic Audium, uh, paragraph 116. This is why we are called to take on more seriously and systematically the theme of Catholicity. I recently found a stimulating reflection on this subject by Stephen Bevans, who, following the insight of Darrell Gooder, rightly interprets Catholicity as a missional mark, a missional quality of the church, to be considered ad intra and ad extra. However, it is not the intention of this presentation to offer a systematic reflection on Catholicity, for which much more time and space would be needed but simply to suggest two fundamental ways toward Catholicity following Pope Francis' teaching. The first way is, is exemplified by an ever-present expression in, in Francis' teaching, the culture of encounter, which in Francis' mind is the opposite, actually the answer to what he has denounced as globalization of indifference, the throwaway culture, and also indirectly the clash of civilization or cultures, that has become so fashionable in our times, since Samuel Huntington came out with this catchphrase in the 90s. It is fundamental to understand that the culture of encounter does not, does not just stand for a cultural change in an environment in which polarization seems to have gotten the upper hand. It is, and it becomes increasingly difficult to dialogue among people who disagree because of the supposed incompatibility among different ways of living and thinking. It is also more than a firm and countercultural counter ethical stance. 
in Francis thought it has, first of all, a theological, Christological, and missionary dimension. The cultural encounter has, first of all, a theological, Christological, and missionary dimension. The depth of this expression is testified by the fact that at times it has been communicated by Francis as the mysticism of encounter, not just as the culture of encounter, but the mysticism of encounter, which underscores the divine mystery hidden and revealed in human encounters. Unquote, so be men and women of communion. Have the courage to be present in the midst of conflict and tension as a credible sign of the presence of the spirit who inspires in human hearts a passion for all to be one. Live the mysticism of encounter, which entails the ability to hear, to listen to other people, the ability to seek together ways and means. Live in the light of the loving relationship of the three divine persons, the model of all interpersonal relationships. This is from a speech, uh, end quote, this is from a speech from uh, uh, Pope Francis. In this sentence, the Pope exposes some of the main characteristics of the culture of encounter. The exhortation to have the courage and the passion to be people who, who unite in times of conflict and division. That doing this is a witness to the presence of the spirit in the midst of humankind. The ability and willingness to listen and seek together ways to go forward shows and anticipates the vital connection between the culture of encounter and synodality, the second way toward Catholicity that we want to suggest here. But most importantly, the origin of the culture of encounter, which is the loving relationship among the three persons of the Trinity. This theological Trinitarian element is further developed by Francis in another affirmation, such as, unquote, whenever we encounter another person in love, we learn something new about God. Whenever our eyes are opened to acknowledge the other, we grow in the light of faith and knowledge of God. End of quote. In the encounter with the person, we learn something more about God, because in this encounter, Jesus himself was become flesh, one with humankind, in order to encounter and redeem humankind. But here, Francis becomes even more specific. Unquote, sometimes we are tempted to be that kind of Christian who keeps the Lord's wounds at arm's length, yet Jesus wants us to touch human misery, to touch the suffering flesh of others. End of quote. It is by encountering the wounds of the humankind that we encounter the real Jesus. And among that wounded humanity, the discarded, we find often migrants, refugees, and victims of human trafficking. And here is the Christological connection. We cannot encounter Jesus without encountering people, especially those who are suffering. The consequence is a call to continue Jesus' mission, which is the mission of encountering people, especially the wounded and the discarded, the suffering flesh of Christ. Again, unquote, the gospel tells us constantly to run the risk of a face-to-face -face encounter with others, with their physical presence, which challenges us with their pain and their pleas, with their joy, which infects us in our close and continuous interaction. True faith in the incarnate Son of God is inseparable from self-giving, from membership in the community, from service, from reconciliation with others. The Son of God, by becoming flesh, 
somewhat as to the revolution of tenderness. The mission to which we have been summoned by Jesus, who became flesh, is the revolution of tenderness, which requires the culture of encounter. And it is nothing easy or to be too romanticized because it requires a constant interaction, as we saw in the quote uh, in English uh, by Pope Francis. Well, the Spanish translation of that interaction is cuerpo a cuerpo, which is almost hand-to-hand -hand combat, hand-to-hand -hand struggle, which means a struggle with ourselves and the others in order to create solidarity, fraternity, and sorority within a polarized humankind. In the synodal document dedicated to youth, he expands on this idea and connects it with other elements already mentioned in this presentation. Unquote, it is not easy. It, is always, it always means having to give something up and to negotiate. But if we do it for the sake of helping others, we can have the magnificent, magnificent experience of setting our differences aside and working together for something greater. If, as a result of our own simple and at times costly efforts, we can find points of agreement amid conflict, build bridges, and make peace for the benefit of all, then we will experience the miracle of the culture of encounter. Again, the miracle of the culture of encounter. This is something which young people can dare to pursue with passion." End of quote. I believe it is clear by now that the culture of encounter is not simply a moral or optional exhortation, but it represents an, essen an essential evangelical call, something that each and all of Jesus' disciples must do if they want to follow Jesus. And there cannot be Catholicity, this inclusive journey toward the whole, without this culture. What has been said about the culture of encounter shows the intimate link that exists between it and synodality, which is not simply a secondary trait of the church, but an essential one. In his most important speech on this theme, Francis treats synodality as constitutive elements of the church. He says, unquote, if we understand as St. John Chrysostom that church and synod are synonymous, inasmuch as the church is nothing other than the journey together of God's flock, along the paths of the history towards the encounter with the Christ, the Lord, then we understand too that within the church, no one can be raised up higher than others. On the contrary, in the church, it is necessary that each person lower himself or herself so as to serve our brothers and sisters along the way. Synodality is, in other words, the way the church walks together in history, in faith and service, under the merciful guidance of the Father, the steadfast and loving accompaniment of the Son, and the life-giving and energizing breath of the Spirit. Much has been written recently in Roman Catholic circles about synodality, especially since Francis has made it the pillar of the missionary conversion reform of the Church. But also in this case, I just raise a few brief points about this theme, which I deem relevant to our discussion. Firstly, the synodal style requires humility and courage. And Pope Francis is very clear about this. Before any synodal event, he reminds the participants that they have to listen in humility 
and they have to have courage in speaking. Humility in listening and courage in speaking as inseparable in a synodal process. Two, inclusion is fundamental, and I believe that at least in the Roman Catholic Church, this aspect has become very explicit during the recent Pan-Amazon Synod, which has taken place in Rome from October 6 to 27, 2019. The participation of many members of indigenous people with their tradition and custom, fruits of a long process of the inculturation of the Christian faith, has really challenged a certain Western understanding of Catholicity within our ecclesial communities. Equally important, this is the point that I want to make, is that finally, at the table, at the table around which the usual Christian leaders and people are comfortably seated, there were also the people Francis defines as the descartados, the discarded, the product of the throwaway culture. And it is important to understand that the descartados are not just the exploited and the excluded, but they are the people often treated by our society as waste, as garbage, as basura, desechos, as he says in Spanish. They are literally, literally the thrown away. And it is these people that Francis insists to have around the table of synodal processes. Third, it is simply to be expected that synodal processes will cause confrontation, opposition, tension, and conflict. But Francis does not consider this a problem, but on the contrary, as an opportunity to continue the journey of conversion, change, and reform. Lastly, and most importantly, dulcis in fundo, as they say in Latin, there is the protagonism of the Holy Spirit. There is no doubt in Francis' mind that the main protagonist of any synodal process is the spirit, and not its human participants. Without the spirit, there is no synod. In his recent letter to the Roman Catholic Church in Germany that is going through a synodal journey, he says, unquote, in substance, we are talking about a synod under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which means to walk together under, under its light, direction and eruption to learn to listen and discern the always new horizon that the Spirit wants to gift us with, because synodality supposes and requires the eruption of the Holy Spirit. And Francis is very straightforward about the unpredictability and the unexpected turns that the Spirit suggests during the synod. And since some of the most effective observations by Francis come during his spontaneous remarks, I will mention one of these during a general assembly of the diocese, of his diocese, the Church of Rome. He was criticized in some local churches that had given in to the temptation of functionalism, what he calls functionalism, wherein churches are concerned about perfect organization, departments on different issues, academic studies and analysis of the reality, while at the same time, the ecclesial community is slowly but surely distancing itself from the mission, the proclamation of the gospel, and from the reality of the discarded, the descartados. Synods in such, search, such churches, says Francis, are able only to rearrange things, not to produce a real missionary conversion. The Pope says in this regard, unquote, to be a synod, there must be the Holy Spirit. And listen to this, and the Holy Spirit kicks the table throws it away and begins again. To be a synod, there must be the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit kicks the table, 
throws, throws it away and begins again. I would like to conclude my reflections inspired by this unusual remark by Francis. We have said that migrants and refugees are among the most convincing messengers of a Christianity that is no longer just Western, but global. Now, through the ideas of cultures of encounter and synodality, we want to add that the encounter with the flesh of migrants and refugees, which is the flesh of Christ, that said, I was a stranger, you welcomed me, in Matthew 25, 35, makes them, the migrants and the refugees, the ambassadors of the spirit that kissed the table. And I would add also the rest of the furniture that makes us comfortable in our churches and round tables. In this way, migrants and refugees, inspired by the spirit, push us to the return to the mission, to the way uh, at the beginning in the Acts of the Apostles, the Christians are, were those of the way. To the journey together, where we, we can share the essential, which is the joy of the gospel. That is the essential of our mission. And in this journey, we discover that these brothers and sisters of ours, the migrants and the, and the refugees, are the prophets of Catholicity, the irreplaceable witnesses of the beautiful variety of Christianity. Thank you very much. You're listening to Fuller Curated. I want to thank Professor Campesi for a very interesting and stimulating address on the place of Catholicity in the discussion of migration, religion, and world Christianity. My name is Mel Robeck, or Cecil M. Robeck, Jr., and I'm Senior Professor of Church History and Ecumenics at Fuller Theological Seminary. Like Rome, Los Angeles has long been an international and cosmopolitan city. Migration and immigration are not new to the city. In fact, in 1907, the city issued its only international directory of Los Angeles. Its intent was to list the names and addresses of all the residents and merchants of the city who spoke foreign languages. It was broken into what the editors identified as 10 linguistic colonies all of them European in origin. It did not take into account any indigenous Mexican languages. It simply treated all people from Mexico as being Spanish. Nor did it include the Chinese or the Japanese, many of whom attended the city's seven Chinese language churches and its three Japanese language churches in 1907. The publication was a product of what was called the Liberal Alliance, a group identified as some patriotic and public-spirited men who believed that too many foreign immigrants to the region did not understand American democracy and needed to be informed about the grandeur of our Republican form of government, end of quote. They wanted it to enlighten these new immigrants as to the political realities of the region, to interpret the United States Constitution for them so that they might cast their votes intelligently and to gather them around a banner of liberal patriotic principles. As I've thought about these people in the Alliance, I can hear the echo of the Apostle John in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 49 and 50, when he informed Jesus, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he did not follow us. He was different. 
In Los Angeles, the Alliance wanted to get these migrants and immigrants to embrace their way, the Alliance's way, to understand the Constitution their way, and to become like them. In short, it was an attempt to assimilate the foreigner into the culture without caring for the different cultures that might enrich the city. And yet, when John proudly informed Jesus of what he had done, Jesus reminded him, whoever is not against you is for you, meaning, I think, that there was plenty of space for the migrant and immigrant. Since 1907, migration and immigration into Los Angeles County has continued unabated. It now includes many more language groups than in 1907, with the Los Angeles Unified School District offering education in 92 languages other than English. Today, the five most substantial groups of migrants or immigrants into Los Angeles come from Mexico, El Salvador, the Philippines, Guatemala, and South Korea. The vast majority of them would identify themselves as Christian, mostly Catholic. And as you suggest, they show concretely the global face of Christianity today. It's also the case that over the past 50 years, California has received a large number of Chinese, Taiwanese, Indian, Vietnamese, and Iranian migrants, together with their religions, especially Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. World Christianity, and I would suggest Christian mission, are both on our doorstep in Los Angeles. Fuller has a strong ecumenical history with its first professor of ecumenics, Dr. Bella Vassity, a Hungarian immigrant named in 1949. And since 1985, Fuller has been an ecumenical gathering place, bringing together Christians with participation in many of the national and international ecumenical bodies. As professor of church history and ecumenics, a Pentecostal ecumenist with close ties to the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, I have followed the work of Pope Francis with great interest. Indeed, my wife and I were privileged to participate as ecumenical guests representing Pentecostals worldwide at his inauguration in Rome in 2013. I have especially appreciated Francis' attempt to release a stagnant Roman curia from itself and to move it from a culture of personal isolation and privilege, a culture of careerism and functionalism, and to challenge it to become a culture of encounter. I have found much to affirm in his desire to encourage this change. And a genuine culture of encounter implies complete openness and transparency, a willingness to give and to accept hospitality to or from the other a willingness to submit to one another for the common good, a willingness to give oneself away, or as Jesus put it, to lose their life for my sake so that they might gain it. Some of these things must die in order for this new way of thinking and doing to spring forth. And for the church, it may go as far as to imply participation together in what Pope Francis has called the ecumenism of blood in order to bring about the kind of unity for which Jesus prayed in John 17. The Apostle Paul reminded the Athenians that from one ancestor or from one blood, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, Acts 17, 26. We were a common humanity before any national borders existed. We were also a common humanity before any of us became Christian, 
In his most recent encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, released on October 3rd this year, Pope Francis notes, and I quote, the sense of belonging to a single human family is fading, end of quote. He calls upon our common humanity to address many of the issues with global ramifications such as the extraordinary changes in the environment, the global COVID-19 pandemic, the disparity of human rights, the ever-growing inequities of wealth and poverty, and the rise of populism and nationalist interests that weaken the communitarian dimension of life. These are but a few of the issues he addresses, though the rise of populism and nationalism, he contends, sows despair and discouragement, leading to further impoverishment and subjection to the hubris of the powerful. Your points regarding migration, then, fit easily into Pope Francis' latest teaching on the subject, and they raise significant questions before us at this critical juncture in U.S. history, the choice of national and local leaders. Our current situation, regardless of the positions taken, is being stoked by fear, sometimes by candidates, sometimes by the media, and sometimes by us, the people. And yet fear emanates from challenges that those with power face, especially from their inability to control these challenges. And yet, as the Apostle John reminds us, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever, faces, uh, whoever fears has not uh, reached perfection in love. 1 John 4, 18. So just as you note the case in Europe, while migration and immigration have brought the church in Europe face-to-face -face with world Christianity and world religions, especially Islam, so too has this happened in the United States and in greater Los Angeles area. In our case, we have not faced as significant a challenge from the introduction of Islam, though it is now present, as we are facing unresolved issues stemming from the migration forced upon our African-American citizens over three centuries. It also comes from the genocide perpetuated or perpetrated on our Native Americans. It's the appropriation of lands under the banner of manifest destiny and the refusal of basic human rights to a host of Asians who helped to open up the West here in California. Current immigration policy is a mess and here in Los Angeles, that applies especially with regard to those coming from throughout Latin America. And American churches have not brought proper leadership to the subject, nor have they brought sufficient pressure to bear upon our political representatives or decision makers. Your call for us to take seriously not only the Catholicity of the church, but in a broader sense, the Catholicity of humanity is, I think, an important contribution. Catholicity presupposes unity. Paul regularly reminded the churches to whom he wrote to embrace the selfless mind of Christ, Philippians 2, that, quote, all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought, 1 Corinthians 1.10. He reminded the Ephesians that God had broken down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, creating one new humanity, Ephesians 2, 11 and following. He urged them to make every effort to keep or maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. 
the writer to the Hebrews also wrote, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 to 18. The Apostle John constantly lifted up the new commandment regarding love. The call for unity within the church is a call to mission. Remember the prayer of Jesus in John 17, verses 20 through 23. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Unity, then, supports the premise and power of reconciliation, helping the world to understand and embrace the truth of what it conveys. Your point that we can better understand the idea of Catholicity if we think about it from the standpoint of a culture of encounter is rich with promise. My own Pentecostal spirituality is rooted in a culture of encounter, that is, between the Spirit of God and us. If we can embrace a culture of encounter <clears throat> between all human beings in which we recognize the dignity that God has given to every individual— it may move us back to understanding the inherent value of all of humankind. Rather than viewing migration and immigration as a challenge that is rooted in xenophobia, a challenge to our personal power or position or the way we do things, it might open to us a way to live, as Pope Francis puts it, quote, in the loving relationship of the three divine persons the model of all interpersonal relationships, end of quote. As I read Fratelli Tutti this week, I noted that Pope Francis made a very strong case for the role of encounter in his exposition of the parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. The robbers, or in our language today, the oppressors, encountered men traveling from Jerusalem to, Jeru to Jericho and violently took from him what was rightly his. The priest and the Levite, men of social and religious standing, encountered the man, and then they ignored him. They treated him as a throwaway person as they turned away from someone who was obviously in pain and was suffering. And yet here comes the Samaritan, who good Jews considered to be impure, sometimes not even real people. Sometimes they looked down upon them. He stopped and he showed mercy, cleaning and binding the wounds, nursing the injured Judean. And then the Samaritan recruited the innkeeper to help aid in the giving of mercy. And he did all of that at his own personal expense. Pope Francis applied this parable to the contemporary world situation in a clear and, I think, a very forceful way, drawing implications for all of us, for our institutions, and for our governments. 
a genuine encounter in which we enter into the pain and suffering of the dispossessed, whether they be individuals or nations, can bring the kind of change that we see best illustrated in the Samaritan's actions. Our tendency to react selfishly rather than responding in love and mercy will only continue to divide humanity further rather than bringing healing to those most in need. Your suggestion regarding the relevance of synodality here is also well taken. In one sense, it draws upon history to help us with present challenges. Our tendency these days, especially among the young, is to dismiss history as always being biased and thus as compromised and, e and it can be easily dismissed. It is a common approach in this period of deconstruction. Yet as G.K. Chesterton notes, the tradition, that is, the core of the gospel, which has come down through the generations of the faithful in history, provides our ancestors with a voice in our current affairs. They are, after all, still part of the church. It's our myopic uh, approach to life, I think, that tradition and history can call us to account, recognizing our limits and pointing us in new directions. Kohelet reminds us that there is nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes 1, 8 to 11. Joshua had 12 stones placed as a memorial by the Jordan to remind the Israelites what God had done for them when he dried up the Jordan and allowed them to cross. The psalmist called upon Israel to remember what God had done, to remember their covenant with God. And the apostle Paul tells us that memory, that is a recall of the history of what Christ did on the cross, is essential even as we take the Eucharist. Synodality reminds us of those who have gone before us, as well as all of those who currently journey with us. As we deny ourselves and take up our cross daily to follow Jesus, as we serve rather than demanding others to serve us, as we enter all of human relations with humility and gentleness and patience and love, we will gain our lives and make a significant difference in the world around us by restoring and securing unity. Thank you. You have been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu slash studio.